What a wonderful morning it has been so far. I love the way Marcos says, yeah, there's just like, you know, I don't know, 10, 12, 15, 20 people. It's like, that's never happened to me in my life. That's just amazing information that the Lord is, is bringing those people around, this young man, to tell them about Jesus and disciple them in the faith. And then hearing from the year sevens, how many of you went, went on a trip down memory lane as they was talking? Hearing from Charlotte that I'm looking forward to getting a locker. You're like, I was 12 years old all over again, back at school, opening my life. I've been, they're just exciting days, are they not? Nerve-wracking, but exciting. And I'm so blessed by the way the Lord has been with us this morning, and I trust he'll be with us in the preaching of his word as well. And so turn in your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 15. Today we are starting a new five-part series entitled Risk is Right, and It's a series that I've been looking forward to for some time. It was a series that I actually felt the Lord birth in me um, in August of last year when I was in Ethiopia, hanging out with Riley and hanging out with the Ethiopians and seeing the way they were living for the Lord. I was stirred by them and it really started a burden in my life to study more on the issue of risk. And really this is the beginning of a five-part series that is the culmination of that beginning in my life. And I believe the Lord wants to work in us as a church on this issue. It's such an important one. So I've called this message, Risk is Right. And although we're going to be looking at various different texts throughout this morning, we're going to start in Acts chapter 15. This is the moment when the Jerusalem Council write to the Gentile believers. Many Gentiles are starting to become saved. And so they're going to send Paul and Barnabas with a letter to them to help them understand different things. And this is what they say about Paul and Barnabas, verse 25 and 26. It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with their beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Men who have risked their lives. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to this new series, Lord, I just commit it all to you. Lord, would you stir in our hearts what only you can do through your spirit? Would you take away the blindness of our eyes at times? Would you take away the shackles which pull us back from taking risk? Lord, we want to be people that walk closely with you. People that are amazed that we get to know you, amazed that we get to be your friend, amazed that we get to serve you at all. Lord, help us to be people like Paul and Barnabas. Help us to risk our lives. Would you do this for us? In Jesus' precious name, amen. You know, like so many of you, I got to enjoy some holiday time throughout January Uh, We went away, had a great time, and just enjoyed spending time together as a family. And one of the things I did during that time is I read the book Becoming Elizabeth Elliot by Ellen Vaughan. This wonderful book. My wife put me onto it. I would strongly recommend it. It's the story of her life. It's actually the first part of what's going to be a two-part series. And I was deeply affected by this book. See, for those of you that don't know, Elizabeth Elliot was the wife of Jim Elliot. Jim Elliot was one of the five missionaries who made contact with the unreached Orca Wadani tribe in the Ecuadorian jungle. 
The actual tribe name literally translates to mean savage. And they were completely unreached. And yet they believed they had a window as these five men to share the gospel with them. They started to do the groundwork. They learned the language. They were calling to them through the jungle. They actually made contact when they were in um, Palm Beach, which is where they set up their camp. And they actually made contact with two ladies and a man. And they, they seemed to be befriending them and warming to them. And yet on January the 8th, 1956, as Jim and those other four men went into the jungle... It wasn't friendliness they found, it was death. They all got speared to death in the jungle. They threw spears at them, they killed them, and they found them some days later floating down the river, only recognizable by their watches and their jewelry. For these men had brutally murdered them, and so it looked like such tragedy, and it was tragedy. And as you read the book, you realize, what would that have been like to be newly married with a newborn baby, and your husband has just been speared to death? But the story continues, because two years later, Elizabeth Elliot, with her three-year-old by then in the picture, took her three-year-old and walked into the very jungle where her husband had been trying to reach. She was committed to reaching these people for Jesus. She wanted them to know the Lord. She wanted them to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And she entered into the jungle with no guarantees that her and her child wouldn't reach the exactly the same end that her husband got as they would be speared. But in God's kindness, they weren't. They weren't exactly welcomed, but they were certainly allowed in. And over time, she begins sharing the gospel with them. And incredibly, the vast majority of this tribe comes to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior including six men who were actually part of the murder party that killed her husband. And later on, there's pictures with her, with these men, having put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and she's rejoicing in that. I was deeply affected by this lady. I mean, this lady, if you look at the picture, you just realize she's just a lady with a kid. But she had a profound effect on people. And reading about her story affected me, not only because I was amazed at her life, But moreover, I was amazed at what really drove her to do this. Why would you do this? Why would you give up your picket fence in the United States to go to the Ecuadorian jungle to help people know Jesus who have just killed your husband? Why would you do this? And as I was reading the book, really what I realized was simply this. She understood one thing in particular more than anything else. She understood that for the cause of Christ, risk is right. She knew that for the fame of Jesus' name, risk wasn't like an optional extra, something we can take or leave. Some Christians like risk, some Christians don't. No, she knew if I'm going to be a follower of Jesus, then risk is right. It isn't an option. For the glory of his name, I just need to be all in for Jesus. She understood that for the cause of Christ, risk is right. And my friends, as we start this series together, It is that very same understanding that I believe the Lord wants to take and burn into our lives with a hot iron as well. Understanding that as Christians, for the cause of Christ, risk is right. And I submit to you, for us here in Sydney, as part of the Western world, this is something that we so need to hear about and linger on. Because unless I'm mistaken... Risk for the sake of Christ is not exactly the flavor and theme of the Sydney theme, is it? This is not what the world is saying. You know what? Yeah, you should risk everything for Jesus. That sounds like a great idea. Risk is not the norm of what we hear about in our country and in our city. I put to you that the things that we hear most about, the cultural narrative in the air we breathe, is one of comfort and safety. 
make sure you are comfortable, and hashtag stay safe. That is the cultural narrative that we all breathe all the time. And the challenge we face is that is so different to Elizabeth Elliot risking her life for the cause of Christ. Those two things don't go together very well. And it is so easy to get sucked in to a comfortable, safe Christian life. I mean, comfort, when you think about comfort, people in our culture, they love to be comfortable, do they not? People love to be comfortable. They want to work really hard, and then what do they want to do when they get home? They want to play really hard. They want to be comfortable. They want to be entertained. They want to be looked after. They want to build their world around themselves. It's about this big. We want to be super comfortable as much as we possibly can, and it's so easy to get drawn into that, is it not? I remember some years ago, as I think I've told you before, I went away with M. We went away to a hotel together. This was probably five or six years ago now. And uh, we hadn't been away for a while. And so we sat down for dinner in this wonderful um, hotel, having a great time. And I must have gone vacant for a moment as I'm just leaning back in my chair. And she just looked at me and said, what are you thinking about? And I said flat out, I said, you know what? I belong here. (laughs) And then I said, and these are my people. I'm looking around. I belong here. These are my people. I mean, I wasn't even joking. Talk about out of the heart, the mouth speaks. I was just in my element, and I'm just thinking, this, this is where I really belong. Everything else is so hard, but this is where I should be. Listen, there's nothing wrong. I mean, my wife typically in that moment, she just laughed at me, rolled her eyes. I mean, it's kind of standard practice when I come out with those type of stupid comments. But there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong, honestly, for all of us to enjoy the blessings that God has given us. However... The problem comes when we think that we should be comfortable all the time and we start to smuggle in comfort and expect it and assume it when it comes to our walk with Jesus. We start to think that should be the norm. I want to follow Jesus, but I want to make sure I'm comfortable all the time as I do so. Because that's what it should be, right? We start to assume it and expect it and think of it as the norm. Francis Schaeffer wonderfully said it this way. He said, in the world... We're always standing on quicksand. Oh, what a wise comment. In the world, you're always standing on quicksand. We don't think we are. We're just breathing the air and thinking of it as normal. We're not. You are going to be sucked in as a Christian all the time to be pulled in to comfort, expecting it and assuming it to be the norm in your walk with Jesus. That's the antithesis of risk. No one's going to take a risk. We can look at uh, Elizabeth Elliot and think, I admire that. It's amazing. Do you want to do it? No, it sounds uncomfortable. Where's that? Well, that's because we idolize comfort. We love it. We think of it as norm. We should assume it. We should expect it. And if comfort doesn't get us, then another thing does instead, namely safety. I mean, people in our culture, they love to be safe, do they not? I mean, we think of ourselves on Australia, I certainly do, and I promote us this way, as, as people that tackle wild crocodiles at a moment's notice and we clamp their jaws shut. That's how, how people think we are. But actually, when you do your research, Australia was the first country in the world to legalize seatbelts. It was the first country in the world to legalize air, airbags in the car. And it was the first country in the world to actually make it law that you have to wear a bicycle helmet when you ride your bike. We love to be safe. We love to be safe. We're not actually wrestling crocodiles. We're making sure we're safe. Why? Because we think if we can control all the different environments, then I'll be really safe. I'll be fine. 
I'll be able to live for as long as I possibly can. But the problem is, when you examine life, safety is a myth. You cannot control things to make you safe. In fact, in reality, you can't control all that much. None of us in the room can control when your heart might stop or when you might have a stroke that changes your life. You can't control when you might get sick. You can't control what oncoming drivers may do as you're driving home today. You can't control whether there's a bacteria in a piece of food that you're given in a restaurant that would radically affect your lives. The truth is you can't control very much, but we like to live in this idolized state that I can. I can control everything and be safe. If there's one thing COVID taught us, I think, it's the reality that you cannot control very much. We like to eat and drink and be merry thinking, oh, today and tomorrow I'll do this and that. But then before we know it, a small virus takes over the world and everybody's shut in their house. Are you really in control? Am I in control? John Piper, in his book, Risk is Right, where I've taken so much inspiration from as I put together this series, he says, safety is a myth, yet it is a myth and mirage that we can so easily believe in and live by. We think we can have safety and security and aren't addicted to it, and yet we can so easily give ourselves to it more than we realize. My friends, it's true. We think I can just control my environment for myself and my family and for my kids, and we'll all be fine. But actually, safety is a myth. If Elizabeth Elliot had idolized safety, she certainly would have had that, wouldn't have had that picture taken in Ecuadorial jungle carrying a three-year-old. She would have gone, no way. I'm just going to look after my family. But instead, she understands that risk is right for the cause of Christ, and she moves forward. Michael Reeves, in his wonderful book, Rejoice and Tremble, says it this way. He says, though we are more prosperous and secure, talking about the Western world, and though we have more safety than almost any other society in history, safety has become the holy grail of our culture. And like the holy grail, it is something that we can never quite reach. Listen. Protected like never before, we are skittish and panicky like never before. Why is that? Well, it's because in our society, the cultural narratives of the day are comfort and safety. Stay safe and be comfortable. And we're all in quicksand, whether we realize it or not, and can so quickly get pulled into that. And so that's why we're doing a series all about risk is right. And I want to exhaust you, exhort you throughout this time that the, for the cause of Christ, risk is right. And so this morning we are going to be looking at five stories in the Bible that help us understand that risk is a theme. I'm not going to go into any of them in any great depth, so don't worry, you won't be here till dinner time. But it is going to be story time with Dave because I want you to see in the Bible that this isn't just come out of my head or John Piper's head or Riley Springs' head or some guy in Ethiopia. This is a theme that actually runs all the way through our Bible. People take risks for the cause of the Lord and I want you to be washed with the word. And my hope then throughout this entire series is that faith would be cultivated, courage would be strengthened, and risk will be our norm. That we'll realize this isn't just for some Christians. It is actually what it means to be a Christian and follow Christ as our Lord and Savior, understanding that risk is right.
for his great cause. We're going to begin then with stories of risk in the Old Testament. We're going to look at four of them. And the Old Testament is indeed a great place to begin. In Romans 15 verse 4, this is what Paul says about the Old Testament. He says, Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. So easily misunderstood or not understood at all. But what an amazing thing it is to say about the Old Testament. He's helping us see that all the historical stories, all the laws, all the proverbs and psalms and all the prophecies, whatever indeed was written was designed by God to give us hope. He wants to stir our faith, stir our courage. One of the biggest mistakes we make, I think, sometimes, when we've been a Christian a long time, is we tell our kids Old Testament stories and think, oh, isn't that nice? Rather than completely missing the point that, no, it's meant to give hope to you as well. They are true stories of courage and strength and grace that are designed by God, as the Apostle Paul says here, that we might have hope. And So let's start then in 2 Samuel chapter 10 with the story of Joab and Abisha. In this story, the Amalekites had shamed the messengers of Israel and they had made themselves odious in the sight of David. And so to protect themselves now from the oncoming Israelite army, these Amalekites, they hire in the Syrian army some 20,000 soldiers to help them fight against the Israelites. And so they set up shop. As Israel comes out ready to fight, we have the Assyrians on one side And we have the Amalekites on the other side, and they're both gunning for Israel. So Joab, the commander of Israel's forces, he finds himself himself completely surrounded by the Amalekites on one side and the Syrians on the other, and he has a decision to make right there. Are we going to retreat and run, or are we going to risk? Are we going to go forward for the name of Christ, for the name of the Lord, Or are we going to retreat? Well, he makes the decision that he's going to risk. And so he divides up his troops. He speaks to his brother Abisha. And he leaves him in charge of one troop of fighters. And he takes the other troop of fighters. And this is what he says in 2 Samuel 10 verse 11. He says to to, um, Abisha, his brother, If the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. That's the earthly plan. That's the wisdom he has. As we go out and we risk it all, if you're struggling, we'll help you. If we're struggling, you help us. We're going to have to figure this out. But then he says this in 2 Samuel 10 verse 12. He says, Be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. See, that's indicative of the fact that he did not know what was going to happen. Let the Lord do what seems good to him. Like, I don't know if this is going to work. I think we should divide up and you help me and I'll help you, but I don't know. He is literally going not knowing here. But he's going. And he's going because he understands that risk is right for the cause of the Lord. And what happens? Well, they fight. And in God's kindness, they win the war. They win. They destroy the two armies and they don't just retreat with their tail between their legs. They retreat victorious because risk is right. 
We then have David and Goliath, the second story I want to pay attention to in 1 Samuel verse, chapter 17. It's one of the most famous stories that even unbelievers tend to know about, and if they haven't, they've got a cargo or Goliath or something or other. That's where it comes from. See, this story takes place in the Valley of Elah, where two armies find themselves poised for battle. On the one side of the valley, then, they have the army of the Philistines. On the other side, the army of the Jews, led by King Saul. And every day for 40 days, with the army on one side of the valley and the other side of the valley, this huge man called Goliath, this monster of a man, huge in every way, probably two of me and built like a shed, he comes out and he starts to taunt taunt the Israelite army on the whole premise of, listen, you pick one of your men, I don't even care who it is, they come and fight me, and if you win, then we we will serve you. But if I win, you will serve me. They were going to avoid war. It's just one-on-one, old school. It's Lord of the Rings stuff that's taking place here. So they come out and they want to fight. The problem is, for 40 days running, this Goliath man comes out and he taunts the Israelite army and not one person puts their hand up to ever want to fight him. They're so afraid. Well, that is until this young lad called David comes along. David was just a teenager at this point in his life. He wasn't really a warrior. He was into poems and harps and looking after sheep. So his dad kind of looked after him quite a bit. And so he he wasn't at the army at this time. He wasn't old enough for a start. And so he was actually looking after the sheep with his dad. But after 40 days, his dad says, Listen, David, I want you to go over there, find out what's happening. And listen, your your older three brothers are fighting, so I want you to take some supplies for them and and look after them. See how you go and bring me back a good report. And so he wraps up some food and he takes it out to them. And as he gets near the camp, he hears this man, Goliath, taunting the people of God. And he can't believe it. And straight away, this young man, this whippersnapper that's not even old enough to fight, starts looking around at the guys. He's like, what's up with this? Who's going to fight him? No one wants to do it. His brothers are really irritated that he's even bringing it up. And so his whole premise is, listen, I'll fight him. This is what he says in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 36 and 37. He goes to Saul. He says, your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. This was fingers crossed in some ways from Saul. No one else wants to fight them in. So you want to give it a go? You, you go. See, David didn't know if he could exactly win or not, but his premise is you cannot let the people of God be ruined like this. You cannot let God be mocked by this. He is greater than this. So he was willing to risk it for the cause of the Lord. It's quite a humorous story. Afterwards, Saul puts his own armor on him. The way the text reads is he can't move after he's got it on him. He's like, I don't think this is going to work out. And so he takes all the armor off and he just goes as himself. As a shepherd boy, really, with a sling and some stones. And as soon as he sees Goliath coming towards him, as you all know, he takes that sling and he puts that stone right in his temple. And this huge man dies before his eyes. And the army wins. He didn't rest at that moment. He didn't retreat at that moment. He risked. 
understanding that risk is right for the glory of the Lord. We then come to Esther chapter 4 and the third story, the wonderful story of Queen Esther and Mordecai. I hadn't thought a lot about this story until Emma started a podcast called For Such a Time as This. And I'm like, that's an interesting title. And she explained at length why it was an interesting title. I love this title. And there's this incredible story of courage and risk out of love and for the glory of God. See, the story, by way of background, it it takes place in the 5th century BC when a Jewish man named Mordecai, who has been carried away to Babylon by, uh, by the Babylonians during the Jewish exile, he himself has a younger orphaned cousin named Esther, who he adopts as his daughter. And she grows up with him, and as the years go on, she grows into a beautiful lady. So much so that she enters this beauty pageant and she, she catches the eye of the king of Persia at the time, Osiris. And he sees her and in effect he's like, I'm going to marry you. So he does. The king marries this Jewish girl. and She becomes queen, Queen Esther. She was beautiful inside and out. But as the years went on and she made her king wonderfully happy, other things started to take place in Babylon. And there was this one man called Haman who really hated the Jews. He hated Mordecai. He hated the rest of the Jews. He wanted to bring out the original Holocaust. He wants to wipe them off the face of the earth. He hates everything they stand for. And he wants to kill all Jews present. And so he talks to the king. And the king, well, you know, Haman is one of the chief princes. And he's like, well, listen, uh, whatever you want. I'm, I'm not too worried. So he agrees. So Mordecai writes to Queen Esther, and he says, Esther, you have got to do something. I need you to go to the king and plead the case for your people. It is in that famous speech to her that he actually says, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. He's saying, Esther, maybe this is what God raised you for. This is your moment. Your people need you. But here's the challenge Esther had. She's just a normal lady like us. The problem that she had in that moment is she knew that under royal law, if anyone approached the king without being called, and she had not been called, unless he lifts his golden scepter, they would instantly be put to death. Although it's her husband, he's still the king, and the king does not realize that his wife is a Jew. So she has a decision to make in this minute. Realistically, she could could gather people around her and probably flee for the hills and run. Or she can risk. She can risk for the glory of the Lord and for the glory of her people. This this way is safety and comfort, no doubt. This way, who knows? She might get killed today. And this is what she chooses. In Esther 4, verses 15 to 16, it says, Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. See, in that moment, she knew for the cause of the Lord, risk is right. I can do no other. How can I not move forward for the glory of the Lord and for the good of my people. I can't just retreat and rest. My life can't just be comfortable and safe. I've got to trust him. 
and move forward. And in God's kindness, he did use her to save her people. The king did agree with her desire, and she didn't perish, and neither did the people. And finally, story four, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel 3. We all know the story. You probably have songs running through your head if you went to Sunday school. It's a wonderful story, though, that has been designed by God to give us hope. The story is set, again, in Babylon during the Jewish exile that took place there. The king is King Nebuchadnezzar. He has set up the image of gold and commands that when the trumpet sounds, everybody will bow to it and everybody will worship the image. And most people are up for this, but not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They are not willing to bow down to these false gods. They're not willing to worship false images. And so Nebuchadnezzar gets wind of this and he threatens them. Listen, if you will not bow to this golden image, then I will throw you in the fiery furnace. Well, that's a risk. That doesn't sound safe or comfortable. It's a risk. A real life. Don't don't romanticize these people. They're just like you. And this is what they say. In Daniel 3, verses 16 to 18, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Their commitment is to the Lord. And so whatever it costs, they are not willing to rest or retreat. They are willing to risk it all for the Lord. And in God's kindness, as the story continues, God does save them, doesn't he? They are thrown in the fiery furnace. And others around them are killed as they throw them in. But not them. They're seen in the fiery furnace chatting away. They seem to be having a nice time. I don't even know if they were too hot. But they're totally protected. And the Lord brings them out. They understood. Risk is right. My life wasn't meant to be about comfort and safety. It's about risk. You know, all those stories, I think we can find ourselves inspired and encouraged by their example. And I want you to know, though, this doesn't mean that every time we risk for the cause of God, that the outcome will always become safety and comfort, that we're risking it, but kind of not really, because we'll be okay in the end. Not necessarily. It wasn't the case for Jim Elliott. You don't know how the Lord will come through. Maybe as you risk, you will be part of the equation that actually your life will come to an end, but it will all be part of the story. You don't know. But what we do know from the Bible and what we do know from life is that for the cause of God, risk is right. It's just the right thing to do. And then we get to the New Testament. And I want to take you to one final story that I want to talk to you about today from the New Testament. And that's the story of the Apostle Paul, a man who I believe was the greatest risk taker, humanly speaking, of the New Testament. I mean, the mantra and mission statement of Paul's life, it appears in Philippians 1. And he says this actually really near the end of his life. If you look at the timeline of his life, it's actually very near the end of his life that he says this. And this is what he says in Philippians 1, verse 20 to 21. He says, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not not be at all ashamed but that with full courage, now as always, 
Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. See, that really is the mantra and mission statement of Paul's life. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me, to live is Christ. It's to know him as my Lord and Savior, to be amazed by him and to have the privilege and honor to get to serve him. And to die is gain because then I actually get to be with him. That was the mantra and mission of his life. The challenge that we can have sometimes in the Western world is we read our own cultural lens through that. And so what we hear is, for me to live is Christ. That sounds amazing. It must have been a blessed life of comfort and safety. You must have had a happy family with a white picket fence all around you. It must have been amazing. I mean, you went to church when you could and sometimes maybe risked by going to gospel community where you could. When we put our own lens on it, we assume to live as Christ must have been a wonderful, happy, healthy life and to die is gain because then I got to be with him. But that is not his story at all. See, Philippians 1 was written after 2 Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians 11 was written much earlier in Paul's life. And this is a short description of his life at that point. This is all wrapped up in to live is Christ. This is his life. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 24 to 28, he says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches." You know, as he writes that, he's not complaining about it. He's just letting us know what happens. And it's when you examine his life that it makes his mantra and mission so much more incredible. For to me, to live is Christ. You've just described your life. That doesn't sound too great. No. You see, to Paul, it was great. Because to Paul, this was the window into his life. He was like the man in Matthew 13 that found a treasure in a field and then away, away, went away and sold everything he had for that treasure. To the Apostle Paul, he was like the man who found that treasure. He found the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. He was like a man who fell in love with Jesus and began to have a relationship with Jesus, knowing what it was to be forgiven of your sin and redeemed and brought into a relationship with him. He was so amazed that the Holy Spirit lived in his heart. And he counted it an absolute honor to lay his life down to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. What a privilege of my life. He was the man then that found a treasure in the field and so loved Jesus, so had a relationship with Jesus, that he can say, to live is Christ. To know him and to love him and please him and serve him. Oh, to live is Christ and to die. Yes, that would be to gain because then I get to be with him. But he goes on in the very next verse and his premise is, I can't decide which one I like the most. Not because his life was safe and comfortable, but because his life was besotted with Jesus. And he counted a privilege then for the cause of Christ to understand that risk is 
right? To live is Christ. It's to know you and love you and understand that my life has been bought with a price. It's to have a relationship with you and it's to serve you in any way I can. And to die, well, that, that would be the gain because then I get to be with you. But I'm happy either way. You use me as you want. I'm just so thrilled to know you. Paul understood that for the cause of Christ, risk is right. And all the way through the New Testament, he's joined by so many others that do the same, whether it be the widow with her two mites, whether it be Peter or James or John or Lydia or Thomas or Andrew or Barnabas that is mentioned in that verse that I mentioned at the start in Acts chapter 15, a man like Paul who is risking his life for the name of Christ. The New Testament is littered with people that are understanding this and doing this for the glory of the Lord. and They've all delivered their lines. But as the story concludes and you begin to turn the pages over and close the book, you realize that it's now time in God's kindness to deliver our lines. Our lines of risk. Our lines of forgoing safety and comfort and instead risking it all for the cause of Jesus Christ. And my friends, as we walk through this series together, I believe the Lord has lines for each and every one of us when it comes to risk. See, maybe for some of you, what God will call you to is to greater risk for him in terms of relationships. Relationships can be risky. And maybe you're somebody who's quite introvert. And so for you to be around lots of people, it's actually not not your preference. Well, maybe the Lord's going to call you into the deeper waters of relationships this year. To actually spend more time with people. Maybe you love relationships and you're friends with everybody. Or maybe the Lord's going to call you to actually be more faithful in those relationships and understand what it means to speak the truth in love and not just be everybody's friend. Maybe that's how the Lord's going to call you to risk this year. Maybe for others of you, maybe the Lord is going to call you to greater risk for him when it comes to giving. And so you give now and you you give well, but if you're honest, if you were to assess the way you give, you're just kind of creaming some off the top. And so whether it existed or not, you have so much that actually you're totally fine. You don't need to rely on the Lord for anything. Even the prayer, give us today this daily bread, doesn't even make sense to you because you're just like, I go to the shop and I buy it. I don't, I don't know, I'm fine. God could die. I'll still be fine. Maybe for you, it's actually growing in trust for the Lord. And maybe he wants to cover you and pull you into deeper waters when it comes to risking things and giving to find him to be faithful as he said he would. Maybe for some of you, he will call you into a greater risk for him when it comes to mission. Maybe for some of you, this is the year when you need to go into the office and say, Righto, some of you should know, I'm a Christian. Okay, I've said it. Maybe for some of you, your friends don't even know that. And if they do, they certainly don't know what that means. Maybe for some of you, this is the the year that the Lord will stir your heart to go to an unreached people group and serve him overseas. To risk it all for the fame of Christ. To put your lives on the line for moving forward. And if that, even as I say that, twinges your heart, you think, no way. Yet that's called the comfort and safety of the world on you. I'm not saying we all have to go. Please don't. Some need to stay. 
But for many of us, we've never even thought about it. Never even asked the question. Because I'm fine, thanks. Maybe this is the year where the Lord will prepare you to go way beyond whatever you would have asked or imagined. Or maybe for some of you, the Lord will call you to greater risk for him in terms of taking him as your Lord and Savior. The Bible says in Romans 10 verse 9 that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. That's how you become a Christian. You put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And when you put your faith in him in that, when you confess him as your Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Is there risk in that? Oh, absolutely there is. The Apostle Paul himself said, if this isn't true, then we're to be pitied more than anybody. But then he goes on to tell us, but it is true. It is absolutely true. And millions and millions and millions of people around the world have found it to be true and experienced what it is to have a relationship with God and rise and go forth and follow him. Maybe this is your year to do that. To know him as Lord and Savior. And maybe for some of you in that, you think, I've got plenty of time. I'll be fine. I'll just take my time and see how we go. You know, we had a young man coming to this church for the last probably two or three weeks at least. Brendan and I got an email this week to say he died on Monday. We don't know hardly anything about him. And I say that just to say, you never know when your time is done. Christ loves you. He died for you. Know him as Lord and Savior. I don't know exactly what God will call you to risk for him this year. But I do know that for the cause of Christ, risk is right. Praise God that in 1958, Elizabeth Elliot didn't just go for the safe and comfortable option and take her kids back to the United States and just live happily ever after. She did take her kids to the United States years after. And one comment for her daughter was, Mom, they're all wearing clothes. She was so shocked. Because in her world, no one wears clothes. But praise God that she was willing to step out in faith and take a risk. A whole tribe came to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior as a result. She went on to live her life passionately for the Lord. She wrote 28 books and gave 300 Um, addresses to congregations out of 365 days a year and did a radio station. That's a life well lived. (laughs) Praise God that she didn't play it safe. Just go. My friends, I want to encourage you as a church, for each and every one of us, may we not play it safe either. May we risk our lives for the cause of Christ. Let's pray. Oh Lord, as we set sail on this new series, oh Lord, I pray as I prayed at the start that you would have a wonderful work in our lives. Would we be sobered and envisioned and encouraged? Lord, we are living and breathing in a country that is not saying this. We are living and breathing in a country that will rush us and pull us to safety and comfort. Oh, Lord, would you help us to guard our hearts from those things? And would you help us just to fix our eyes on you and say, whatever the cost, 
thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. I'm with you. I want to be with you. I want to serve you. Lord, there's no way that we can do this by ourselves. No way. We so desperately need you. And so, Lord, as we close in song now, Lord, would you minister again to our hearts? Help us to understand that you are with us. You haven't called to do this by ourselves. You are present with us. And may we understand then that yet not I, but through Christ in me, I can risk it all for you. In Jesus' name.